New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Rick, thank you so much. It's really lovely to be here with you all, and uh, great to have so many friendly faces in this seminar today. And I, I really hope um, that we'll be able to spend some good time together, just to know you're amongst friends, and also to recognize that that this question around problem guilt is a question that so many Christians struggle with. Uh, and I've done talks all around the country uh, to, to groups of Christians who, who know the love of Jesus, who know the fullness of the salvation that he offers, and yet still struggle with this persistent sense that they're not quite good enough and that they need to reconfess uh, the sins of old. So we're going to be dealing with some of this stuff. I just want to read a bit of scripture uh, before we uh, get into the detail here. And this is from Hebrews chapter 10, uh, just verses uh, 1 through 4. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered for the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty from their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And these are really uh, sort of powerful opening words from Hebrews about this repeated experience uh, of uh, the Jewish nation. That they keep coming back over and over again to offer new sacrifices. And here Paul's saying, look, they keep re-offering the sacrifice because if these sacrifices worked, they wouldn't need to because they would feel that their consciences were cleansed and sprinkled. And so your experience, if you struggle with problem guilt, is not just your personal experience. It's not an experience of personal failure. It's a common experience. But we have something really unique in the complete work that Jesus has done. But there's always, as C.S. Lewis said, a massive journey between our head and our heart. And we have to try and make that transition. And that's going to come through both spiritual revelation as we understand more about the word of the Lord, but also sometimes through a psychological awareness. And I'm hoping to bring uh, some of that uh, to the table with you today. So if we were looking at those uh, key verses that give us assurance around salvation, there will be Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near to God with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I wonder when you look at those two verses, do you think, yeah, that's what I want, but that's not exactly how I feel. If you said to me when I was a very uh, passionate, um, young, uh, committed uh, trainee minister in the Church of England, age 23, that I was going to uh, start a mental health ministry, I would have run at 100 miles. Uh, I would have avoided at all costs 
And yet, um, the Lord somehow has a work of redemption. Sometimes he turns us back to the things we never thought we were going to ever engage with. Uh, and in 2005, I found myself uh, dropping my young wife off at a train station and then walking back to our tiny flat off the Edgware Road uh, um, in London. And, and, and just at that same moment, the uh, London bomb went off in the Edgware Road station. Um, a series of four bombs uh, one on a, a, a London bus, killing 52 people, I think wounding 270 people very seriously. Uh, and I happened to be uh, in the Edgware Road location just at that very moment, and I put on my dog collar, not something I wear very often, and, and I went under the cord and I offered uh, to assist. And I was so young and inexperienced, had no idea what I was walking into. And um, I was on the site, uh, we were facilitating that, uh, that emergency service response over the course of that next 24 hours and then five days. And I saw things and I obviously heard things that were, I wasn't prepared for. And the consequence of that three months later was that I experienced quite complex PTSD and, and anxiety breakdown. And uh, I had no, no context for that spiritually. You know, in the, in the, in the church community that I was part of, I, uh, I think... There was two responses. One was to spiritualize the problem, and that was to try and cast out the devil. That was uh, creating a disturbance in my mind. The other one was to physicalize. That was to say, hey, you're just tired. If you could just have a rest, eat well, sleep well, you know, you're going to be fine. And actually, it was my uh, secular GP who said, look, you've had a really traumatic experience here. This is really abnormal. Uh, this creates huge levels of stress, mind and body, and you're reacting physically and psychologically we need to help you to get well but it was that point I thought oh my goodness if I'm experiencing this as a priest what are the community around me experiencing when I started talking about mental health in 2005 suddenly a lot of people were suddenly saying yeah me too this is my experience as well so here we are 17 years on and the Mind Soul Foundation is doing this work and we work collectively as a group of psychiatrists and psychologists and, 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 and I'm the theologian in the mix. But I want to tell you that what one of the experiences that I had uh, during that period of acute anxiety was high levels of problematic guilt. I found that I was awakened to uh, what sort I call scruples, which are tiny things that other people wouldn't think were important or significant. I wonder if you can relate to that. Things that you feel bad about that other people are like, oh, what are you worrying about? That's ridiculous. Or, or, or old sins, things that, you know, there are significant things that make you feel bad, but, but actually things that you really dealt with and worked through and you haven't felt bad about for a long period of time. So I found that my psychological experience awakened me to feelings of guilt which weren't necessarily real or relevant. And walking away from that and experiencing great psychological recovery has shown me that, that the issue of guilt is far more complex and far more live than a sort of uh, swap shop transaction. You know, that, that actually everyone feels guilt, but Christians specifically feel high levels of guilt because our consciences have been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're all the group of people who are particularly prone to guilt, but also the church self-selects. People who look for a savior are people who recognize that they need a savior. And so by our very presence in the church, we're likely to be a group of people who are quite heightened in our awareness of our sin and our need for Christ. So we've got a group of people who, who are predominantly going to struggle with issues of guilt, and then we've sometimes not got a theology that explains or supports those ideas fully. So I want to show you a few Christian assumptions around guilt. The first one is that all real Christians feel free uh, from uh, the guilt of their pasts. So many of you will be thinking right now, if I was a real Christian, I wouldn't feel like this. 
Now, I've met Christians who say, I've confessed the same sins every single day for the last 25 years to the Lord, and I still don't feel any better. Am I a Christian? You say, well, have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I have, but I don't feel any different. Are you still a Christian? But there's a struggle here because our assumptions are, I should feel differently if I, uh, if I really am forgiven. The second uh, assumption is that feeling guilty indicates that you are guilty. Who, 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 who can associate with this? Is anyone going to claim that? Okay, great. Quite a few people. So if I feel guilty, I must be guilty. I supported a woman uh, who had quite a complex um, orifactory uh, disperception. That might sound like a complicated term. But an orifactory disperception is, in a sense, not a hallucination because you're aware of it, but the recognition that in your nose you are smelling things that aren't actually there. Now, for a long time, this lady was struggling because if she was in a building, she would start smelling smoke. Now, the trouble about that is if you start smelling smoke in a building, you're thinking, I'm at risk, but potentially everyone else is at risk. The temptation is then to press the fire alarm because you've smelt smoke. So you could be busy pressing the fire alarm in a building because you're convinced that actually the building's on fire. Everyone leaves the building. And then someone says, you know, why did you press the fire alarm? Well, because I smelt smoke. But there was no fire. Now, it took a significant amount of time for this woman to realize that she was experiencing an orifactory disperception. That actually, when she felt stressed, she smelt fire. Oh, my voice is changing dramatically. <laughs> now, guilt can sometimes be like an orifactory disperception. So you can smell guilt, but there really is no fire. So the assumption that just because you feel guilty, you are guilty, is a really important one for us to uncouple in part to that. I'm not sure that's helping me massively. I need to hold the mic up even higher. Sorry. It's my, my radio Britishness. <laughs> Thirdly, feeling um, guilty about confessed sin is a sin. So many of us will struggle with the idea that because we know we're forgiven by Jesus, reconfessing our sins to Jesus displeases Jesus. So many of us will get into a trap where feeling guilty about old sins doesn't just make you feel guilty about the sin itself, but you feel badly about yourself because you're a Christian. Because you're thinking, I should be over this by now. So it becomes a trust issue, a bit like worry. You think, oh my goodness, I feel worried. I should trust, therefore God is displeased with me. I just want to reassure you today that God has ultimate compassion for you. You're his child. He longs for you to feel peace. He longs for you to feel that peace. But he's not angry with you for not feeling that peace. So try not to bring a new sense of condemnation against yourself because you're struggling with this phenomenon. Fourthly, I am completely responsible for what I feel guilty about. One of the weird distortions about guilt is it, it prioritizes the issue as your issue entirely. I was speaking at a conference uh, on mental health uh, now a couple of years ago, and a lady came up to me afterwards and she said, that false guilt talk you did, that, that's, that, well, it's not false guilt, that's what I feel every single day. And I said to her, you know, wh what is it that, you keep reminding yourself of. She said, well, I'm divorced. I'm like, I wasn't looking shocked. She says, I'm divorced. I said, okay. And she said, well, I just feel so guilty that I've broken my marriage vows. And I said, okay, well, tell me a bit more about it. And I said, no, who's responsible? She said, well, I'm, I'm responsible. You tell me about your relationship. 
And what she did was she disclosed a story of violent domestic abuse and assault. And, and it transpired, in fact, that she had to leave the relationship because it was unsafe for her to remain in the relationship. And I said, look, if, I, you know, if we were going to distrib- distribute blame or responsibility, you know, who should take responsibility for the re- breakdown of your relationship? She said, well, I, I should. And I was saying, well, hold on, let's look at why you feel guilty, how you were schooled into feeling guilt, how you experienced coercion and control that diminished your sense of self-confidence, that left you feeling overly responsible for things that aren't actually your responsibility, that ultimately led you to make a decision to protect yourself and leave you in this room now believing that you're responsible for everything that's happened. And now tell me which bit of it is true. We'll talk a bit more about responsibility pie a bit later on, but I just want to help you to think, not everything you feel guilty about is your responsibility dynamically, and that there are sins of commission, the things that we have done, and things of omission, the things that we haven't done. There are sins that are reality of our fallen circumstance. And what I'm not trying to do here in any way is diminish sin. What I'm helping us to see, I hope, is that actually sin can be dealt with. But also we can accept the reality of what Christ has actually done on the cross and live in alignment to the truth that we have a greater freedom than we maybe believe that we have. Fifthly, and this is really important for us to believe today, is that there's only one sort of guilt and one way to deal with it. I was, I was chatting to John a bit earlier this morning at breakfast. That In the church, we haven't always been terrible at dealing with guilt. In fact, we were brilliant at dealing with guilt. The Methodists were fantastic. They actually had two labels for guilt. True guilt for true sin. So when you've really messed up, that's sin, and there's real guilt associated with that. And for that, we have a real saviour. But they also had another term that they used, which was called scrupulosity. And scrupulosity was this term of of false conscience or or oversensitive conscience. Spurgeon writes about it quite extensively. Uh, Lewis references it as well a bit later. But the Wesley brothers were particularly interested in this idea that actually many people seem to struggle with a heightened sensitivity of conscience which inhibited their Christian walk with Jesus. There's actually a a group of people in society who have a vulnerability to feeling guilty despite not actually being guilty. And and what we know historically is that the church at large were really worried when the psychoanalysts arrived at the turn of the 20th century. So primarily Sigmund Freud, who most of you here will know, but also Carl Gustav Jung, who's, if you like, the second father of psychoanalysis. And, And... And what Freud did was he risked the idea that that sin was just a construct of the mind and that guilt was a response to, if you like, an artificial construct of being. That actually there's no such thing as sin. Sin is just a socialized experience. And that the conscience is a fear of rejection from the community at large to a socialized accepted norm. So we effectively feel guilty because we believe we're going to be ejected from a community because of artificially accepted... um, statements or standards of attainment, achievement, or behavior. And the church was really nervous because, hey, if we could psychoanalyze away sin, then we wouldn't need Jesus. So the church suddenly became really quiet about the issue of scrupulosity because actually that's a risk. If you as in the church are saying, well, look, there are two sorts of guilt. There's false guilt and real guilt. You're at risk of agreeing with the psychoanalysts and saying, yeah, there is a sort of false guilt. That seemed to agree with what Sigmund Freud was saying. And the result was it was a lot easier to say there's no such thing as false guilt. There's only true guilt and true sin. And for that, you need a true savior. 
So in many ways, the church at the turn of the 20th century did a disservice to all of us because it left us believing that there was only one guilt and only one way to receive freedom from that guilt. So are we all there? I'm, I'm off, I'm, there's a lot going on right now, I'm sure. You're like, okay, he's talking quickly. There's a lot of words. But you know, if you're not unclear about anything, just stick your hand in the air as we go. Okay, so thinking more about this idea, I want to lay down one kind of clear premise to you, is that actually there isn't just one sort of guilt. There is actually two sorts of guilt. And one we can operate with very straightforwardly as Christians, but the other one we need a little bit more wisdom to operate with well. And um, one of the fascinating studies I read was from the Carnegie Mellon University. We were writing the guilt book, um, which uh, Rich has referenced, uh, which is here in the bookshop. And um, a a man called Taya A. Cohen was doing some work after the Edward Snowden WikiLeaks case. I'm sure you remember that. So what they were trying to do was trying to find people who would work for the U.S. government, uh, be really honest, uh, were really intelligent, and wouldn't give away state secrets. So how hard can that be, right? So you're trying to find out who those people are going to be. And and so what they did was they were trying to work out what sort of person could work in government and yet give away state secrets. I don't know if you remember the old, um, the sort of Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes series. But but if you you watch those Sherlock Holmes, you'll recognize that that the Sherlock Holmes is a sort of high-functioning sociopath. And that's exactly the sort of person that the US government wanted to weed out Because they're the people who were very intelligent, could socialize effectively, but ultimately didn't have any allegiance or loyalty to you, so therefore might give away your state secrets to everyone and put them all on the internet. Taye Cohen, as part of this study, found that there were these people who had what called low guilt proneness. Now, people with low guilt proneness are effectively sociopaths. They don't feel badly about anything that they do. Now, I can guarantee you that there isn't a single sociopath in the room right now because you will have self-selected not to come to this particular uh, <laughs> tent because you don't know what guilt is because you do not feel guilt. So this would be like, unless you're here to find out what guilt feels like, which would be quite difficult, um, then you won't be in the room, effectively. So it's like the, let's hope there aren't any low guilt prone sociopaths in the room right now. But represented here by the little green uh, Hulk-like uh, Lego character. Excuse me for using Lego characters. I find it, it more inclusive and I don't sort of stereotype any particular person. So then, then you, you go up the scale and you can see there's a kind of the criminal and then we're in the middle round here, the sort of punk, who's on the edge, a little bit edgy. That might just be your teenage son, but, but somewhere in the middle there. And then the kind of Bob the Builder character who everything's straightforward for. Now, in society... The majority of people find themselves in that central band of both feeling guilty and not feeling guilty. When they do something wrong, they feel badly about it. Most of them forget about it and don't bother about it anymore. It feels historic. It doesn't feel important. And they kind of truck on with life as, it, as is you know, normal. And then we move up towards the kind of Christians in the, with a smiley face. They're slightly feeling slightly more guilty. And then the ministry team right up here at the top right. <laughs> Who, uh, who have what we call high guilt proneness. And when, when they're praying for you, they start crying. And you're like, hold on, I came forward because I was ill. Why are you crying? And I feel your pain. You know, it's like, there's this like unbelievable connectivity that's going on right there. So what Taya A. Cohen found was that 20% of society at large struggled not with sociopathy, of which actually there are very few, uh, but, but actually from high guilt proneness. 
So 20% of the society at large had a vulnerability to feeling overly guilty despite not being guilty. Think about it from your own experience. Have you found people, who, if you, you know, aside from yourself, have you met people who seem to feel badly a lot of the time? Who feel badly or apologize a lot for things that they maybe haven't done? Uh, or maybe socially kind of shy or tentative to step into a space because they don't maybe feel that they might be welcome there. They're all traits of, of, of high empathy and um, a high guilt proneness. Now, in sharing this with you, it doesn't, it doesn't diminish the reality that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a separate issue. What we're saying here is that a significant portion of society have a tendency to feel guilty when actually there's nothing to feel guilty about. And that shows you one thing is true, that feeling guilty and being guilty are not necessarily the same thing. Now, when we try and work with you on this idea of a kind of radical acceptance, this can help you at moments where you might want to replay your greatest worst hits to start saying to yourself, is this really guilt that I need to address? Or is this something else? Is this a dispositional issue? And so if we're going to simplify the idea, I want to suggest to you that there are actually two types of guilt, true guilt and false guilt. Now, labeling is really, really powerful in the psychological realm and in the coaching world. And if you can label things correctly, you know, you find that you get different outcomes. Just think about your kitchen counter right now. You've probably got a group of those little pots. In one, you've got sugar. In one, you've got tea. And in the other one, you've got salt. Now, if you make a small mistake with either of those three condiments, your food tastes dramatically different. So if you put the salt on your cornflakes in the morning, that's not a good experience. If you put salt in your tea, that's bad news. If you put sugar on your curry, it tends not to taste so great. It's, it's just a small change, but labeling matters. Sugar and salt look very, very similar, yet they taste completely different. And I want to suggest to you that true guilt and false guilt are like sugar and salt. They might look the same, but they taste very, very different in your psychological experience. True guilt is an uncomfortable inner awareness that we have violated the moral law of God. Okay? That's a pretty brutal way of saying it. But true guilt is an innate sense that we've violated the moral code of God. Now, true guilt is real-time allocated. So it's a present-time experience. And what that means is that this is not a historic reliving of something in our past, but this is an engagement with something in our present where we're arrested by a reality of our conscience being awakened. And that's like hearing the alarm bell the fire alarm going off for the first time. You immediately respond and you go outside and you begin to deal with the aftermath of what that looks like. Listening in your mind back to a time when the alarm bell went off, that's not the same experience. So I want to say to you that true guilt is a first-time response to an awareness that we violated God's moral code and in time-limited terms, it's an active moment when we begin to leave the building because the alarm is currently going off. So true guilt has one remedy, and that's a true saviour. The great news is that by being in this tent, you're demonstrating not only that you struggle with true guilt, but you're one of the small number of people in the world who knows the only remedy to the reality of the problem that we're dealing with, the bigger problem, which is the problem of true guilt. No other religion in the world 
has a mechanism by which you can be absolved of your true sin. You can work for it. You can potentially be reincarnated against it. Um, you can do good works to amass against it, to offset it. But no one in the world has any remedy like the Christian remedy. No one has the ability to expunge your sin and wash away your guilt and sprinkle your conscience in order that you might be able to engage fully with the joy of the Lord. So whilst you're struggling in this tent with the issues of false guilt, you're also not struggling with issues of, of, of the eternal ramifications of being guilty before a, a perfect and holy God. So you can breathe a sigh of relief on that level. There's something great to feel, you know, something to feel really good about when you know that you're truly forgiven. But it's also saying that actually I am truly forgiven, but now I need to also work out why I'm still struggling with this secondary reality. So if, if true guilt points towards a true saviour, what does false guilt point towards? I think R.D. Lang said, false guilt is guilt felt and not being what other people feel one ought to assume that one is. Now, a lot of our false guilt is in sort of a diminished sense of self. Like, I don't match up against, or if people knew X about me, they wouldn't want to be my friends anymore. Rob and I wrote a book um, called The Power of Belonging, I think in 2019, looking at the issues of uh, belongingness theory. And this is this idea that everyone has an innate value to belong, and the opposing power, if you like, in belongingness is shame. Shame is the feeling that actually if people knew who I was, then they wouldn't want me to belong. And much of our experience of false guilt is linked to this sense of otherness, that I'm not good enough to be part of this community. We haven't got enough time to delve into that deeply here today, but, but false guilt presents a threat that if people knew what you were like or what you'd done, they wouldn't want anything to do with you. And all of that provokes this idea of fraudulence. I feel like I'm a fraud. And it's interesting to see how many people now associate with that idea of imposter syndrome this idea that actually I'm in a position of leadership or authority and yet I don't feel good enough. And some leaders deal with this really badly by standing up on the lectern and telling all their worst hits. You know, I've I've had some terrible stories. You know, I was addicted to pornography for 20 years, you know, sort of ruining their ministry publicly. Everyone's going, oh goodness, completely unsafe and all sort of nodding and smiling, oh thank you for your honest testimony. You know, work they should have been doing in the back room with accountable leaders and psychologists and other priests. They're now doing in the public square why are they doing it? They're doing it because they're desperate to get away from this feeling of otherness. If only I could just tell you all my worst hits, you would accept me as I really am. Of course, everyone nods, but do we really accept? I don't know. We struggle. Now, I want you to know that these feelings of otherness, these feelings of fraudulence, these feelings of being an imposter are common across society, but they're particularly common to you if you're in a position of leadership because you begin to mean, feel that you're being judged by a different standard. And you begin to feel like, oh my goodness, but I'm here on the tier and I shouldn't be here anymore. I'm sure many people in this room, if they're honest, they say, yeah, that's exactly how I, I feel or how I felt in the past. And again, I just want to encourage you, say these things are normative. Let's help Disney uh, to unpack it for us. I'm sure you've, many of you will have seen The Lion King. I can see Disney fans straight away because their faces like light up like, no, I'm not going to burst into song. Um, but... Um, just think for a minute about, if you, I'm sorry if you haven't seen this movie, but you'll get the idea. Um, so Simba, the young lion's father, Mustafa, is the kind of the head of the pride, this worthy great lion. And Simba's a playful young cub uh, who has a very wicked uncle. And the wicked uncle, desperate to take power over the pride of lions, sets Simba up 
effectively releases a herd of buffalo that kill uh, Mustafa in a kind of stampede and leave young Simba believing that he is responsible for the death of his father. Now, the entire premise of The Lion King is based on a story of false guilt. Is Simba responsible for the death of his father? Yes or no? Yet Simba spends his whole life lamenting the reality in his mind that he is responsible for the death of his father, Mustafa. In fact, he even extricates himself from his circumstance and takes up lodgings with a small round pig and a, uh, and a, a meerkat and sings strange songs like Kakuna Matata uh, for several years where he kind of grows up and still, files, still finds association with a warthog and a meerkat preferable to, uh, to his own pride of lions. Many of us, because of the power of false guilt in our lives, seek exile from relationship for the sake of that sense of otherness. We would enforce an exile against ourselves and not enter into relationship fully or freely because we believe we're not good enough for those relationships. Now, it's very difficult to disappear off into the bush and make friends with warthogs and meerkats. But we can be present and in plain sight, but still in personal exile. And this invisible exile is terrifying and paralyzing, where you live behind a smile and you appear to show connection, but internally you're feeling like, I don't, really de I don't deserve to be here. I don't, I don't belong here. And there are some very big social themes in our world at the moment that can make us feel catastrophically excluded. Jesus did say, as you think, so you do. And that's very painful for people with, with, with false guilt. Again, I want to encourage you to know that psychologists argue we have between 18,000 and 77,000 unique thoughts every single day. The vast majority of them are of absolutely no value to you whatsoever. And the vast majority of them say nothing about your personal character. When Jesus talks about adultery, he talks about entertaining the idea of adultery in your mind. And as you entertain and generate that same idea, you fall into sin. Many of you will have had fleeting thoughts about all sorts of terrifying and terrible things. Everyone does. That's not the same thing. Jesus is not saying, as you have automatic and intrusive thoughts, so you do. Because Jesus himself was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. That means Jesus must have thought about everything possibly negative that you could do, and yet he hadn't entertained it, therefore it didn't become sin in his life. So if you're struggling again with problem and intrusive thoughts, it doesn't mean that you've done all those things, which is another struggle that many people who struggle with false guilt believe. I'm such a worm, I'm so terrible, I'm struggling, I don't deserve to be here. So, feeling guilty and being guilty aren't the same thing. If you're still wondering about the Disney story, at the end of the day, there's a miraculous revelation of Mustafa in the clouds. Simba goes back home, has a massive fight with Scar, his uncle, who in the flames confesses that he was responsible all along. And then Simba becomes the head of the pride of lions and they all live happily ever after. Sadly, there aren't many Mustafas in our story. And there aren't any great battles in the flames with Scar. No one's going to stand up and say, that wasn't your fault, or you didn't do that, or actually that wasn't wrong. So you're left wondering for the rest of your life, should I live my life in exile? And I want to say to you today, Jesus doesn't want you to live a life in exile. He wants you to live a life as part of the body. 
that you are uh, sage from all of your guilt, that you are cleansed from all of your sin. And whatever you've done, however bleak, however bad, you're still absolutely forgiven. And you have to bring your life into alignment with that truth rather than believing that if you felt differently, somehow the truth would be true. The truth is true whether I feel it or not. And what your feelings say to you about your old life or your past sin or even the false things that you believe you might have partaken in, actually those don't have any bearing on the reality of what Christ has done for you or how Christ, Christ feels about you. So what does false guilt actually emanate from? Well, firstly is what we said already, a high guilt proneness. So this is the sense that maybe you have a disposition towards feeling guilty. Can everyone accept that in the room right now? Just, just all put up your hands for me for a moment. Just own the fact that you could be one of the 20% of people who have high guilt proneness. That's okay. Be kind to yourself. That's not your fault. That's just a, a reality of your genetics. Here we are. I, I, I struggle with high guilt proneness. Secondly, guilt induction parenting experiences. Now, this is, this is again, we could spend a whole day working on this stuff, but many of us will have been parented in a way that made us feel guilty at a young age. And that has an echo into our future life and we have to be aware that our parents many of them did the best they could with what they had in their hands at the time but sometimes the way in which they parented us left us believing that we were more responsible for negative feelings than we really are and so an example of this would be little Johnny has got out the pots and pans from the cupboard and is playing the drums on the pots and pans mum is depressed and struggling with postpartum experience now, Johnny hitting the drums, or the pots and pans, makes Mummy feel unwell. But Mummy says, Johnny, stop hitting the pots and pans. You're making Mummy sick. Now, Johnny, aged two and a half, believes that there is a causal link between him taking action on the pots and pans and Mummy lying on the sofa being very unwell. And he grows up to believe that his action has a greater effect on other people's well-being than is really true. So that's an example of what we call guilt induction parenting. Now, that's a very soft example because many parents parent with mood. So the parent goes quiet, makes the child feel guilty that they've misbehaved, and the reward is reaccess to the parent again. So you parent the child by going, uh, I'm not talking to you, being silent, being moody, and then the child comes on, clings onto your leg, mummy, mummy, please, please, mummy, mummy, I really love you. Uh, okay. And then you come back in the room. Now, that guilt induction parenting leaves the child again believing that they are bad, that they are a causal factor for, for the silence. And that grows up in them in adulthood to leave them believing that, again, they should apologize for breathing and that they need to work really hard for acceptance. And there will no doubt be a number of people in this room who've experienced that in sometimes quite dramatic terms. My encouragement to you is, if that resonates with you, it might be worth talking to someone professionally about that experience. Now again, this isn't about laying play, blame at parents' door, it's about re reality, our real experience of what it looks like to learn that we have greater agency in other people's experience than we really do. Those same people tend to apologize profusely to others, call up at the first sign that someone else might be struggling, believe that everyone else's bad mood is their fault. And, you know, if this is you, I remember sort of this sort of Sue at the water cooler. You know, you come into work, Sue is at the water cooler, you go to get the water, Sue looks in the mood, you're like, 
Oh, good morning, Sue. Sue doesn't respond. So you're like, oh, morning, Sue. Sue still doesn't respond. She gets her water, goes back to her workstation, sits down, and you immediately feel that grip of guilt. What have I done to upset Sue? And then during the day, you sort of poke your head above the workstation, like, and, and Sue's looking like, you know, what is he, why is he looking at me? And do this all day. And then, you know, go in the next morning, and then you say to your colleague, Sue, I, I think I've done something to upset Sue. Oh, really? Sue thinks you fancy her. Ye yes, yesterday, you, she said you were looking at her all day. You know, turns out Sue's cat had had to be taken to the vet first thing, and Sue had a bad time, you know, like a difficult interaction on the bus. But somehow, in you, it's like, I need to know I'm okay with everyone. I, I want to just, I want to sort of empathize with you if that's your experience. Again, be compassionate to yourself as Christ is compassionate to you. That's a difficult experience. But you've been trained to believe that you've got greater agency in other people's feelings and a greater responsibility for other people's feelings than you really have. That's not sin. That's enculturation. Again, it's something that we need to bring the Lord into, but recognize actually I'm feeling badly not because I've done badly, but because in a way I care too much. Low self-esteem and self-worth, again, we could spend a day working on that. But again, some of what I've just said has some tendrils into that. A miscomprehension of the theology of grace. Again, we could spend a lot of time working on what the theology of grace looks like. But remember, it's grace first. You know, we love because he first loved us. He forgave us and gave himself for us as a sacrifice for our sins. All of our action is an action out of what we've received, not an action in order that we might receive. And you know, I, th I think we could go into Erasmus and Luther, and we could go into Augustinian theology of total depravity here, and we would all struggle for a long period of time. I'm aware that I'm speaking to a Northern Irish context as well, where you know, guilt, uh, well, uh, certainly some, some references to guilt and you know, the power of guilt have already been made to me to say, look, we have a, this is a struggle for us in many ways. So I want to say that some cultural values, some theological values here, but ultimately, everything we do as children of God is working out as an act of gratitude for what we've already received, not our attempt to hold on to the leg of God and will him to love us. He already loves us and has given himself for us, even whilst we were still far off. So the priority of grace. And then fifthly, symptomatic of a mental health diagnosis. I want, I want you to know that if you're depressed, guilt is a phenomenon that you experience when I went through this anxiety breakdown in 2005, guilt was a phenomenon of heightened anxiety. That actually, guilt can be a facet of uh, a psychological experience. And what's strange about psychological experiences, if you take medication to recover, your guilt completely goes away. I know that true guilt doesn't go away because you take antidepressant medication. And yet, for many people, there is an association between not feeling guilty and taking the appropriate medication that's prescribed to them by their doctor. So if true guilt was really true, it can't be vaporized by a tablet, but false guilt can be if it's a phenomenon of the psychology of your mind. So I want to also encourage you to look at guilt with a bit more curiosity rather than just thinking, if I am feeling guilty, therefore I am guilty. So what do we do? Uh, as we, We're going to have some questions in just a moment. But the first thing is what I call responsibility pie. How am I going to deal with this? Guilt, like Scotch mist loves to exist in the kind of ether of life. It's a non-specific feeling. You can begin to make headway with false guilt by, firstly, being specific. 
what are you specifically feeling guilty about? And that means, is it also time relevant? And have you ever uh, confessed it before? Secondly, being realistic. How much agency did you really have over what you did? And who else was participating in whatever it was that you're part of? So, so who else is responsible, not just you? Remember my divorcee lady? She was going to take a bit of the pie. She was part of that marriage. But she's only going to take a really small slice. Whereas actually I was going to give a lot of the pie to her husband. Because he's the one who ultimately terminated the relationship. So, so think about specifically... Uh, who, what are you feeling guilty about? Secondly, be realistic about who's responsible. And thirdly, be honest about your response. You know, be honest with yourself. And that means positively honest, not negatively honest. You know, have you turned away from your sin? Have you repented? Number one. W would you do the same thing again, given the same circumstances in your knowledge now? Uh, have you, if you like, experienced remorse and regret? Have you offered it to the Lord in prayer? Have you made a confession to another trusted and safe person? If you've done all that and you can be honest, you can know there's no further action needed. But, but when you take these three steps and distribute the pie accordingly, you can start to break down bigger problems into manageable chunks. You have to learn, I realized, with guilt, to know that sometimes you have to tolerate guilty feelings and accept that this isn't a question mark of whether you are guilty or whether you're not guilty, but recognize that actually in many circumstances, you're pretty sure you're not guilty, and you're pretty sure it's nothing new, but you don't actually need to do anything new. The weird thing about our brain is it serves us dopamine, which is like an emotional sort of cocaine. When we receive a benefit, we feel really good for a moment. The first time you confess your sins, you feel great, like, I feel free. It's amazing how that feeling becomes less and less powerful, less and less alluring, the more you confess. When you've confessed for the 50,000th time, you don't feel anything. Because we become, if you like, habituated to our experience of dopamine. So when you're not getting anywhere with false guilt, the likelihood is that actually you, it's false and also you've over-confessed it. So ask yourself, am I feeling good about this now? If I'm not, I know I've dealt with this stuff. And just saying, I'm going to sit with this for as long as I need to. I don't need to do anything. Because when you keep on doing things, you end up in this spiral of doing and receiving no benefit. Sometimes trust is going, God, I believe I've dealt with this. I'm not feeling like I've dealt with it, but now I'm going to sit with it until it fades on its own, and it will. It's a bit like a wasp that will hit your lunch, you know, at lunchtime. If you start trying to swat it, it will go away for about 10 seconds, and then it will come back with 20 other wasps. Leave it alone, and it will probably just get bored and go away on its own. False skill ultimately steals the joy of the true forgiveness that we've offered. It's amazing how the wonder of the cross gets diminished when we're struggling with false guilt. And I want you to kind of, if you like, fall in love with the Christ of the cross again and recognize the true forgiveness that you've actually received. It's a wonder. But it will only feel like a wonder if you can also acknowledge that there's something else going on in your world that's false guilt that's detracting from the wonder, the majesty, and the mystery of the Christ of the cross. Our guilt feels urgent. It feels significant. Our ideas about ourselves are often really unrealistic. We have this black or white thinking style. I'll either feel great or I feel terrible about myself. And we can feel blocked without certainty. I need to be certain about this. I need to be sure. It's a human addiction, certainty. And we're called to live in a world of uncertainty with acceptance. Ultimately, the Christ is still Lord. And all of this falls back uh, on Romans 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, whilst we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
I want you to sort of real press into this idea of powerlessness where false guilt is concerned and say, Lord, I'm settled in your hands to recognize that there are real sins that have really received your forgiveness, that I'm living under forgiveness right now, but I'm still wrestling in my mind with the phenomenon of false guilt. Help me to see. Give me a revelation of what's true and what's false. I want to accept the truth. I reject what's false, but I live in the tension within my feelings that they will begin to become uh, in line with, or they'll grow in line with what I now need to know is true. So seek revelation in order that you might find peace. I've been talking for quite a long time, and I, I really want to offer some opportunity for people to ask questions from the floor. Uh, this typically works where everyone stays silent and awkward for about 10 minutes, and then 50 people all put up their hands just as we're about to leave. I'd love to stagger those 50 questions into just a gentle flow uh, for the next 15 minutes. And I will just repeat your question, uh, sim simplify it just for the recording's sake. Um, and you can ask any question about this topic or any other mental health topics that I can respond to in a short time. My only request is please keep your questions questions and please keep them short enough so I can repeat them uh, briefly to people. But I'd, I'd love you to start off without shame again and without guilt. I'm assuming that everyone here is struggling. So look around the room. Everyone is struggling. If you're asking a question, it doesn't mean you're especially struggling. Thank you for being courageous. Okay, so it's uh, so a question around the changes in approach to mental health over the last 50 years specifically. And you know, it's very interesting having worked in this sector now since 2005 because uh, things have changed dramatically in that time. And we used to be the only mental health organization, UK-based mental health organization. Now we're one of about eight different organizations uh, that all partnered together. I think John re referenced uh, Kinsugi Hope earlier. Patrick Regan's my prayer partner. He used to run XLP and then we've sort of out of that relationship, forged, uh, he's forged the uh, Kintsugi Hope movement. So th there's a great awakening, if you like, on mental health. Is it true to say that 50 years ago people didn't really think very much about mental health? Well, no, it's, it's actually not true. Um, post First World War and post Second World War, there's actually been a huge amount of psychological therapy taking place, particularly amongst victims of trauma uh, within uh, the military. Um, and what we also know is that historically, the monasteries were the primary place where people received mental health care. Um, and there were a significant number of monasteries where people who were str struggling from psychotic illness, which has been remained relatively stable throughout history, uh, would seek support and help. Um, we've not treated people with mental health issues very well. Um, the Royal the Bedlam, which is the famous uh, kind of site of uh, 18th century interest, if you like, in mental health and became a sort of freak show for people to go and observe people who were mentally unwell, actually started out as the Royal Bethlehem Hospital and was meant to be a safe space for people with mental illness to receive care. So we've, 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 we've abused people with mental health issues and we've silenced people with mental health issues, but mental health issues themselves have remained relatively static. But particularly, as I say, mental health is split into two categories, what we call serious and enduring, and neurotic. And uh, most of us find ourselves on the neurotic end of the scale. They're the depressions, anxieties, self-harm, eating disorders, uh, obsessive compulsive disorders and the like. And then we've got the serious and enduring category, which are issues like uh, bipolar disorder, uh, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, dissociative personality disorders and the like. And then there's this very small thin category called personality disorders in the middle, which aren't really mental health disorders on either side. So um, certainly serious and enduring mental health issues have always been life. Uh, they are a phenomenon of our neurochemistry and our neurological structuring. Um, 
neurotic illnesses uh, have fluctuated in history depending on what people's experience has been like. But certainly post-wars you will know that there have been significant seasons of neurotic illness and traumatic experience but haven't been addressed largely publicly. And humans typically self-medicate. So you often find seasons of extreme alcoholism and substance dependence have been ways in which the population at large have tried to self-medicate themselves out of uh, those, uh, those experiences of trauma. Uh, and obviously suicide rates are a significant and have always been a significant marker uh, of mental health. And you see that you know, in Saul, in scripture, and we've been seeing it uh, ever since. So has the landscape changed in part, no. Has our response changed? Praise God, yes. Um, is there more to do? Absolutely. Um, are there cultural factors that have created what we call an epidemic of mental health? Yeah, there are, and I think they're important to acknowledge. And you could say the breakdown of the nuclear family is one. Uh, you could certainly say the acceleration of technology is one. And you could also say the, the pressure of work uh, and the unregulated nature of work versus rest is another. So there's three very significant social factors which have impacted us particularly over the last 20 years. But again, people's willingness to begin to engage with the support necessary to live well is also improving. And the church is slightly on the tailwind of this. You know, we, aren't, we, aren't, we aren't breaking ground here. We are catcher-uppers. Um, and uh, there's a need, if you like, still within the context of the church for us to recognize that there's more we should be doing for ourselves, but also there's more we can do to serve the word, world well uh, and demonstrate the gospel of Christ for the world around us by recognizing we are not kind of prehistory where uh, psychological support is concerned, but actually also the great message of Christ is a message of freedom for our psychological health as well as uh, for our spiritual health. Great, another, another thing. Yes, at the back. Really helpful question, thank you. So when you've, when you've worked out, when you've accepted some of what I've said today around false guilt as a phenomenon, what, what next? How, do you, how are you going to progress that forward? Well, I, I think there's two things going on. The first one is the separation in itself will weed out 90% of what you're struggling with. So if your phenomenon is to generally feel guilty, you begin to run what I call an acceptance script in your head. So that labeling process becomes, oh, I'm starting to fall into that spiral again when I remember what I did when I was six. <laughs> you know, when I, was, or when I go back to the school classroom and I was a bit of a bully or, or when I did X. I, I know what this looks like now. This is more false guilt and I'm going to arrest it. So you, you label it and you let it be. What you don't do is fall back into the confession activity again of going, right, I'm going to start praying that through. You're like, I'm labeling it, I'm accepting it. That radical acceptance arrests this spiral of process which keeps this guilt phenomenon alive. And actually, it's a difficult thing to do because there's always a doubt. Is this new or is this old? But you have to wrestle and accept the doubt, keep labeling the old and go, okay, this is more of the false guilt. I'm going to let this be. Where true guilt, new guilt comes in, obviously you're dealing with that spiritually in the same way. You're, you're going to the cross of Christ, you're confessing your sins. One of the gray areas is, what if I've done something really bad and I've confessed it to Christ, but it's still really bad? It's not a small thing. Now, the blood of Christ covers every sin, and so I'm still absolutely forgiven, but some issues in our lives might need us to confess our sins, as Paul says, to one another in order that we might realize a special sort of forgiveness. So confession has a particular sort of power. 
And it can be the power to, if you like, get the feeling of forgiveness across the line, even though we're spiritually forgiven. So I'd say most people, we've got lots of what are called packadillos, lots of tiny scruples that generally create a cloud of false guilt. We're going to park that and we're going to leave that be. And every time it comes up, I'm like, I'm probably feeling tired and low. And this false guilt is now beginning to appear on my horizon. But I'm not going to start confessing it because that's just going to start the spiral of guilt all over again. New guilt comes along. I take it to the cross of Christ. I receive forgiveness for it. And I walk away from that being unburdened. Specific and significant guilt, which I've taken to the cross, which is real, but it's still really burdening me. I'm going to make an appointment with my pastor. And I'm going to say confidentially, I just want to talk some stuff through with you that I've confessed to Christ but I still feel weighs on me personally. And that can be a really important step for some people. Some people might not feel safe doing that with their pastor, and they might want to do that with a professional. So sometimes people have been through things, and, and you know, obviously I've been working with the Alpha Movement. We've got people who've been inside prison. We've got some pretty heavy backstories. I'm really great friends with Paul Cowley, who uh, you know, runs the prison's ministry and, and the Armed Forces Alpha. You know, he's benefited, for example, from sitting down and professionally talking through, okay, I did this, I did that, I know I'm forgiven, but I need to unburden myself. And sometimes Christians will have received the forgiveness of Christ, but they're so locked into the weight of the heaviness of what they've done, they don't really get beyond it. So there's a place sometimes for that third tier of forgiveness from Christ and then confession. But the key thing then isn't saying to God, God, I really need to confess this again. Can you go and put your hand into the deepest sea, bring back all the things that I've confessed to you, become awakened to them again, and then forget them again when I've confessed them. Because that's what many of us are doing every day, is trying to wake God up to, to sin that he's already forgiven us for. I hope, I hope that's helpful. There's the, yeah, and, and confession is good, but remember, confession is not the public square where you stand up and try and get a group effect. Confession is where you, in confidence, and with the assurance of someone's uh, own confidences to carry that forward, can listen without judgment, and receive your confession before Christ. So there's a context for it which should be safe and good. And it's also really important we don't get into what we call addictive confession, where we basically find someone to confess to, someone to, and constantly confess to everyone privately, which is another way of feeling the dopamine hit, but actually doesn't do anything for us spiritually. And it just becomes another addiction to us getting away from that same feeling. I think we've got time for maybe one more question. Uh, yes, sir, at the end. Yeah, that's a very good point. So... So gentlemen here is just referencing what, what it's, we call cultural guilt. And again, I think this maybe is a contextual thing. I, I, I grew up in a quite an extreme brethren background. We had a Northern Irish pastor who was working the London City Mission. Uh, and I'm sure you might, you might re, I don't want to parody, but you know, for example, we, we could use the uh, washing, we could use the dishwasher on Sunday because that was doing the washing for us but you could not put on the washing of your clothes on Sunday because that was doing the washing. That was a job you should do on another day. So you could use one of the utilities because that was saving you work, but you could not use the other one because that was doing work that you should not be doing on the Sabbath. Uh, and so we would have that, and you weren't allowed to buy anything on Sunday. So if we'd forgotten milk, my mum would send me to the shop to buy the milk so I, she wouldn't get told off by my dad. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, to, 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 to sin. So I would sin for the family, uh, but my mum wouldn't sin. So uh, you know, I hope that makes sense of the circumstance. So, so um, many of us have been cult enculturated to ideas which actually sit light to the gospel. Uh, 
And, and Jesus addresses this, obviously, in the Sanhedrin on one level and, and, and makes the same points. You know, you wouldn't, uh, you know, you would, you would pull your donkey out of this well on a Sabbath, but you won't let this, this person eat. <laughs> like, you won't let me heal this man on the Sabbath, but you are happy to feed your family. You know, these associated and culturalated values. Now, the point is, you can become bitter and rage against the machine, which is what many people do do, or you can indulge yourself, which is almost like, I'm, I've been living like this for a long time, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to indulge because I've realized I've got a freedom, so I'm going to drink too much, I'm going to eat too much, I'm going to do whatever it is that I had liberty to do. That's equally a counter-response which is not helpful for you. What, what, what is important in this is saying, okay, I, I recognize cultural guilt, Again, I'm sitting tight to the gospel and saying, actually, what is, my, what is my spiritual liberty? And recognizing that there's always going to be a voice of condemnation in your minds. One thing that Carl Gustav Jung did talk about, which was helpful, was what we call the superego. And this was this little kind of group of voices from culture, society, and from the parent, which kind of inform our internal narrative. And that says, hey, hold on, you're buying an ice cream on a Sunday. You know, that's wrong when actually the Lord might be saying, enjoy your ice cream. You know, it's a bounty for you. It's a blessing. You buy an ice cream for that man over there as well, and there's a double bounty for you. You know, there's a sense that you have to be able to recognize that voice will exist, but actually you can sit light to that voice, and you can choose grace for yourself. And part of that might be a process of also forgiving parents and forgiving the church and sometimes forgiving old pastors for the way in which they've been forced to guilt upon you, which has become tight in your chest. And that's a, a kind of an, a very important part of moderation because that kind of forgiveness of saying, Lord, I recognize I've been living under a shroud of guilt which you haven't wanted me to live under is, is a big thing. And if you're an elderly person here and you feel like your life has been diminished as a result of that, you can experience quite a lot of loss because you can feel like, I feel like I've spent 50 years living under a weight of accusation which actually isn't, even, isn't, isn't valuable in the gospel. And I could have lived that greater freedom. So it's just, it's, there's, a, there's a guilt, there's a, there's a sense of loss there, which you have to then be able to reconcile yourself to in the Lord. I'm aware that it's uh, been a long season of you sitting in the tent. I'd love to pray for you if that's okay uh, as we finish the session uh, this morning. Jesus, I want to thank you again for your death on the cross, that you've come to set me free from sin and from all of my guilt. And that every single person here has received your forgiveness, have been forgiven for every sin of mind, body, uh, every decision, every omission. Uh, you've forgiven them, Jesus. And I want to just pray right now that the joy of their salvation would be renewed in them today. That they would have again a sense of joy that they're a child of God created in your image. And Lord, for those who struggle with false guilt, I want to pray. Would your Holy Spirit come and bring revelation on the distinction between what is true and what is false. And I pray you give them the ability to sit in the confusion of those feelings, that they would not take action, but they would commit their ways to you, that you might determine their steps, their path, their course, and their destination. And Lord, I pray for any here who need confession, that they would find a safe uh, and honest and godly person to share their struggles with and find a new freedom. And I pray for us all, Lord, that we'd forgive those who maybe have enforced a guilt upon us, maybe a family member, a parent, a sibling, a community at large, a church leader or a church itself. Help us to be generous as you've been generous to us. Thank you that you've forgiven us in order that we might also share that forgiveness with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much, everyone, for being with us today.
Uh, so great to speak to you. Uh, so um, so there's, uh, I think there's a couple of the books in the, in the bookshop. So the Guilt book is a journey through this stuff on greater level. Uh, there's, all, there's actually eight books, but um, I think the Worry book, the Perfectionism book, and the Guilt book are, are kind of the main ones there. And let's say there's, uh, there's, there's the, uh, the Power of Belonging I mentioned, which they haven't stocked, but it's, they're all on Amazon, so if you want to have a look, you're very welcome to do that, or a reputable book dealer. God bless everyone. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.